Well, hey, what's up? Welcome to Young Adults. My name is Jared, and I'm excited that you're here tonight. We are in the middle of a series called What Would Jesus Undo? If you don't know, there was this cultural phenomenon in the 90s and early 2000s called What Would Jesus Do? There were these little bracelets and these shirts and these hats that people would wear, and they were meant to remind ourselves, what was it that Jesus would do so that you'd be in the middle of a moment, you'd see your bracelet, and you'd be reminded, okay, Jesus would love, Jesus would do these things. Well, as we were talking about stuff, we were like, what do we talk about? What is it that culture does today that, that that we accept totally that like if Jesus came back today, he would just be like, I'm gonna undo those things. And we're not talking about mosquitoes and ticks and snakes. Like I'm against all of those things uh, and all of them are found in my backyard regardless of who's supposed to eat who in the, that ecosystem. Um, but uh, what we're talking about tonight, Logan talked about loneliness last week. The week before that, we talked about apathy. What we're talking about tonight is self-righteousness. And self-righteousness is not a fun or cool thing to talk about. Like when you think of self-righteousness, you think about people that are, are still stuck up and not fun to be around, right? Um, I think about, I was, once I got like assigned this topic between me and Logan and Coco, I was like, okay, what, what is it that I get like self-righteous about? And I was like starting to kind of realize the times that I see self-righteousness in my own life. And, and driving brings out self-righteousness real quick. Um, it might just be me. Uh, if it is, you just sit back and listen to me. But uh, when I'm driving and I'm like late, uh, I'm like driving, I'm weaving. I'm like, what are all these people doing driving slow? If you're in the left lane and you're not passing, what are you doing? I'm like getting angry about like all these people just driving slow. What, why are you even on the road? Just walk if you're gonna go that speed. Get a, get a 10 speed, like get out of here. And I get upset. Then on the other side of thing, I've got young kids. So I've got kids in my car sometimes and I'm driving them somewhere and I'm driving slow, I'm driving careful. And I'm like, these people are driving crazy. And in the same moment, I'm self-righteous against my other behavior that's not this, like it's, it's, it's so conflicting. It's so, you know, self-righteous. Uh, even this morning, uh, we have a 9 a.m. staff meeting with our whole staff. And uh, for whatever reason, Tuesdays, Tuesday mornings are the wrong, like, day for me to get out of bed or something. And it's always like, nine's not that early. And I think I, I know I have time, so I'm like, I can get there. And I'm normally, like, real late. Like, I'm normally, like, right on time or, or after, which is really actually late. And I, I'm struggling to get there. And I'm always, like, patrolling the parking lot to see, like, Who's coming in the same time as me so that, like, I'm not the latest one. I can come in and be like, did you see who came in after me? Like, I'm, I wasn't late, but they were. Like, you can get self-righteous about a lot of things. And, and, and I think a lot of people look at Christianity, and maybe you're here for one of the first times that you've been in a church or back in a church after a long time, and you'd say, man, the thing that I don't like about Christianity is the self-righteousness, Right? People that have a, a worldview on their life and on the world as like, well, we've got it figured out. We found the answer. We found the key. We found whatever it is that brings life that is the answer. So you know what? I'm going to look down on everybody else. And I'm going to be honest. There's times that Christianity has gotten that wrong, and we owe an apology for that. There's things that people are self-righteous about, whether they believe in God, whether they call themselves a Christian or not, that there's, there's an, an, an attitude of what really this gets down to is an area of pride. If you're self-righteous about something, you're prideful. It's a moral superiority. It's believing that you have found the correct way of thinking, the re correct way of living, and now you get to puff up your chest and say, I'm superior, I'm better. And I'm gonna look down my nose at all the people that don't have it figured out. All the people who aren't doing it right. And I think that pride is such an interesting thing because pride is just, it just sneaks in and it's ugly. 
And you can have pride without seeing it. I, I was listening to uh, Francis Chan on this, and he, he told a story about how he had bad breath. And, and bad breath is one of those things where you're like, if you're not careful, you have it, and you don't really know it. Like, I drank some coffee this afternoon, and I was like, way, I, was, I, I just knew, I was like, I gotta, I gotta wear a mask or something, because I, like, I know I got some bad breath, so I found some Listerine, cleaned that out. I was like, that, that might, may have helped. But self-righteousness, what he says, self-righteousness is like bad breath. It's easy to spot in other people, but it's hard to see in yourself. That if we're not careful, we'll see how, man, we've got it figured out. We have the answer. So why wouldn't you act like you have the answer? But there, there's another way of pride and self-righteousness where it's not necessarily like, man, I desire to be the guy on the stage and that type of pride, but a type of pride that says, oh, I would never go do that. And a belittling side of pride that says, oh, that's, just, that's an insecurity of mine, so I'm not, I'm not going to touch it. I'm not gonna go do that thing. But really what it is, is it's a pride of perception where you're going, man, I don't, I don't wanna be perceived that way. I don't want people to look at me that way. I don't want people to consider me in the same line of thinking when they think of that. And as we talk about pride, as we talk about self-righteousness tonight, I want you to just consider, like we did with bad breath, there might be something that you have, maybe even if it's just a little bit, that wouldn't you wanna get rid of it if you had it? I was talking to one of our, our residents about uh, self-righteousness, and I was like, what, what does this matter to the person who just walks in tonight? Because if you're good at something, why wouldn't you puff up your chest about it? If you don't desire that, why wouldn't you kind of say, I don't want to be that guy? And he went on to say he was like in a party in college, and he was talking to a guy who kind of had things figured out. And he was talking to him and asking him, like, man, what's, what's life like? And he's telling him, man, I got all these thing, good things going on. And he kind of saw him and went, man, this guy's got it all figured out. He's in college. He's living the life. He's got friends. He's got girls. He's got money. He's got a car. He's got everything that anybody would ever need. That night, that person took their own life. See, there's a heaviness to pride. There's a heaviness to, hey, I've got it all figured out, so I can't say that things aren't going well. I've built up this persona of myself that if you ever knew that there was someone that lived behind that persona, your image of me, your perception of me would be shattered. So even when we view, view pride and self-righteousness as these two ends of the spectrum, there are so many things that sneak into it. The Bible talks a lot about pride. If you want to learn about pride, you want to learn about self-righteousness, read through Proverbs. There's 31 Proverbs. It's a great thing to read through one a day if you want to just start reading your Bible, seeing what it is that God has for you. But in James, James talks about pride. And when he talks about pride, he almost starts it in an interesting way. And he's talking through James 4. He, and he kind of says, like, hey, you've got these, you, you guys fight with each other, so you, you quarrel. You, you've got these kind of passions that live within you, so you quarrel. And then you, you have these things that don't work out in your life, so you fight and you murder and, and you, you don't have, so you you get angry, and, he, and he's kind of talking about like this, this kind of tension that lives within each person. And then James 4, 6 is going to be, 5 and 6 are going to be up on the, on the screen. And this is what he says about pride next. And it almost seems like it doesn't match. It's these passions that are at war. And then he says this. He says, or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the, the proud, but gives grace to the humble. See, what's happening when we are 
proud, when we are self-righteous, whichever end of the spectrum it looks like is that we are saying we have the answer and ultimately that we are the answer. And there's a lot of things in culture right now that say, man, if you're depressed, you just have to dig in deeper and figure out what makes you tick, what makes you happy. Do that. Hey, you do you. If you are really sad, if you need to figure something out, if you're looking for an answer in life, you just have to figure it out. Dig down deep in your soul. You'll find it. The answer's in yourself. You do you. And ultimately what we find, like my friend who shared the story about the guy that took his own life, he, he had everything. There was nothing that he should have been wanting, but lying underneath the surface was difficulty. Something that led him to his own death. And what I want to talk about tonight is that. And then what it says in verse 6, it says, but he gives more grace. You might have walked in here thinking that I'm the most prideful person and I don't know what to do about it. Or maybe I just have a little bit of pride and I don't know what to do about it. Do you know that God gives you more grace? More of the things that you don't deserve. More forgiveness. More love. But therefore it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. If I know one thing, it's that I don't want the God who created me, who knows all things, who knit me together in my mother's womb, to be opposed to me. I want to live my life in a way that points to something greater and points to something bigger than myself. Because ultimately in our self-righteousness, we're saying, I have the answer. I am the answer. I have figured it out. And I think we have to root that out in ourselves if we really want our lives to mean something. Pride is a poison and it sneaks in. We talked about bad breath, that that can be repulsive. When I was uh, about 12 or 13, I got my own room at my parents' house and it was a room that they they finished in the basement uh, that was kind of around the corner from where their furnace and their AC and all that stuff was. So when I moved down there, they bought this little box and they plugged it in right outside my door and that was a carbon monoxide detector. And a carbon monoxide detector will detect when maybe something's gone wrong with the furnace and it's emitting carbon monoxide and it starts to reach levels. And that thing would beep and it went off one time because it malfunctioned or it ran out of batteries. And that thing was loud. And I remember it because it woke me up out of bed. I thought I was going to die. I was screaming. I was like, Dad, what's wrong? And he came and checked and he's like, it's out of batteries. He plugged it back in and it was fine. But carbon monoxide is one of those things that will sneak in undetected without smell without taste, and will end your life. And pride is the same way. It's not just repulsive, it's deadly. You might have just a little bit of pride. And you might be here tonight and go, this isn't for me because I'm not that prideful of a person. Pride could sneak into any situation, any attitude, any personality type. You might say, I'm not the guy that puffs up my chest I mean, could you consider tonight that there's a little bit of pride and it's not just repulsive, it's deadly. Well, tonight we're in Luke 18. If you have your Bible, you can open it up. And actually, if you have the Bible app, it's a really easy way to, one, start reading the Bible, and two, if you go to it and click on events, we should have something on there for tonight with our notes on it and and our verses. Um, And if not, it definitely happens on Sunday. But Luke 18, 9 through 14 is where we're at tonight. And what you see is Jesus is telling parables to a group of Pharisees. 
And Jesus is telling parables, and parables are stories that served a purpose for Jesus to tell a greater purpose. So he's telling this story to a group of Pharisees, and I want to read just the first verse as we get started tonight. He said he also told this parable to, and listen to this phrase right here, to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Listen to the way that these guys lived their lives. They trusted in themselves that they were righteous. That's a, that's a two-parter. And then they treated others with contempt. It wasn't so much that I can just live this way, I can just be this way individually. It doesn't really affect anybody else. When we start to trust that we are the center and the core and the, the, the overflowing of goodness, we're going to start treating other people with contempt. I don't know about you, but I don't want to treat anybody with contempt. I don't want to treat anybody with that kind of attitude. I want my life to be a life that treats other people in a great way, that points to something bigger and greater than myself. I'm going to ask you tonight as we get started in this verse, what is it that you trust in for your source of goodness? Because for some of us, you go, man, I, I had a rough upbringing, so it's not my family. It's the fact that I can pull myself up by my bootstraps and do it myself. That is my source of goodness. Or maybe you did come from a good family and you have a great support system. So you know that money and people and relationships are always going to be there for you. So that's your source of goodness. Maybe you have an awesome personality and you know, man, I can make people laugh. I can make people like me. And that's what I rely on for my source of goodness. Maybe you're smart. Maybe you're academic. Maybe you can... What these Pharisees would do is they would look at other people and say, man, I'm so thankful that I don't fill in the blank, whatever that thing might be, because I'm the source of goodness. You're not. I am. And then they treated with pe people with contempt. Man, I'm so glad I don't do things like you do. I'm so much better than you are. And he this is what he says to them in verse 10. He says, two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. So in, in Jewish culture, they knew that they had the law that was handed down from Moses, that these were the things that God wanted them to know and to live their lives by. And the Pharisees were a group of really zealous, excited people that they may have had really good intentions at one point, but what they did is that they looked at the laws of God and they said, if we're really wanting to be careful, we're going to build in some margin and we're going to add some extra laws to make sure we fulfill these laws because culture's not doing it. So we want to make sure that we do it and we're going to really uphold the laws of God. We're really going to do this. So they started adding on on all these extra things. So when people viewed the Pharisees, they were like, man, they got it all figured out. They would have had big sections of the Bible memorized at a young age. They would have been people that didn't just do what God's word said, but did on top of that some extra obediences. So people would have looked at them as like, man, they've got it all figured out. But this is the group of people that Jesus had the most trouble with that he was constantly talking to because they were the religious leaders of the day, the people that held the law and tried to disperse the law to the regular people. And he constantly just butted heads with them and said, you just don't get it. You're missing the heart of God for these laws. And God's laws being fulfilled in Jesus are very much a part of what we should know and understand and believe. But they were in the presence of Jesus, of God, and here they were missing it. So Jesus tells this story to the Pharisees. 
And he says, in the story, there's a Pharisee and a tax collector that come and pray. And so when he talks about a tax collector, you have the Pharisee who's the religious man. He's just got it all figured out. And then you have the tax collector who they would have seen as just the worst, the, the absolute just most terrible thing you can think of. Because what tax collectors were is that in, in their day, Roman, Rome had rule over the Jews. And what they would do is they would elect someone the Romans would, they would select someone to be the tax collector and they would tell them, hey, go to all the people that we have power over, the Jews, and collect our taxes from them. And then they, they would go and they would say, okay, the tax might be 15%, but for me to make my ends meet, I'm going to ask for 25 And there's a greed that happened because Rome didn't care how much the tax collectors asked for. So they would say, all right, well, if they're just asking for 15. If I ask for 30, nobody knows, and I'll keep the extra 15%. So these people were seen as traitors to their own community, to their own ethnic group. They were seen as greedy, thieves. I mean, there's no reason to like these people. So in Jesus' story, you have two opposite ends of the spectrum here. And this is what he says in verse 11. He says, the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. This is what he prayed. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Uh, there's, there's a different version of the Bible that reads it, says that he prays to himself. That he goes up in the front of the temple and praying in the temple as a Jew was a regular thing. You would have done it to be obedient. You would have done it three times in the day. And he goes up in the front and he doesn't pray to God. He prays to himself. And when he prays to himself, he looks at everybody else and he goes, God, thank you for not making me like them. Man, that hit me like a ton of bricks Sunday night. Because his purpose in praying was not that he got to stand in front and meet his creator, meet the one who holds all things in his hand, who loves him, like no one else does. He got in front of everybody. He said, oh God, thank you for making me so good. And I just, it, it hit me so hard of, when you sit down to pray, do you genuinely consider who is it that you're talking to? I remember meeting a man named Jeff Carson in uh, when I was probably in late high school or early college, and when Jeff would be called on to pray in front of people, say, hey, let's pray. <sighs> Father. And that's enough time that I'm like, Jeff, he was talking, somebody else need to, um, Jeff, that, and I watched him do it consistently. And it wasn't just a thing that he did. I watched him, whether he was frazzled or he was in his doing, doing well. He took a minute. And he stopped and considered who it was that he was talking to. And I just remember, one, how different that was from any other person and myself that had prayed Especially in front of people, because you're like, okay, how do I sound good? How many of these and nows do I throw in? How many, what do I call God so people know that I'm close with him? He was just like, God, I just, I'm talking to God, the Father here. And it took him a minute. 
Do you know that you have access to God like that? That you can come and talk to God about anything, anytime, and you get to do that. And I think that some of us, I'm, I'm going to put myself in the front here, guilty of this. Standing in front and saying, what are the right words to say instead of, we get to talk to God. The second thing that he does here is he just starts comparing himself to everybody that's around him. He's praying about himself to his creator. And he starts saying, God, I'm just so thankful that you're not making me like them. And I I don't know what God has to say to that. Even if he was praying to God. Self-righteousness is fueled by comparison. Self-righteousness gets propped up a little bit better when we look around and go, you know what, I have been doing well lately. I haven't been doing what they're doing. And I see my friends on Instagram, and they're, they're not. I'm doing better than them. And we start this game of comparison. And we think it's what makes us more Christ-like or gives us a better relationship with God or gives us access to God better. He stood up to God, and he compared himself to everyone else. God's standard of good and bad, God's standard of righteous and unrighteous does not depend on the people that are standing next to you. There will come a day when we're all judged for what we've done. And there's two things that we can say. God, I'm trusting in Jesus and his good work on the cross because he didn't deserve it. He didn't do anything. He was the only one who could have been self-righteous because he was righteous. He died on a cross so that I could have a relationship with you. It's all him. It's not me. Or we could say, God, I, I was pretty good. And what God doesn't do is line everybody up and say, you know what? You ended up in the top half. And who sits on that throne is not our families. Who sits on that throne is not your friends. Who sits on that throne is not me. I don't get to judge you in that moment. It's God. That's the standard. And while that's difficult, it's right. It's easy to compare ourselves to other people. Um, I, I started this thing a long time ago with my grandparents. My grandparents have a lot of grandkids. I'm the youngest of four, so I'm always kind of competing to be something. I don't know what, but uh, with, with my family. And I started doing this thing when I called my grandparents when I was in high school. And uh, they would always call, and my voice is pretty similar to, to one of my brothers. So I would always call and say, hey, it's your favorite. And they would kind of laugh and joke about it. And I would eventually start signing birthday cards like, from your favorite And then, and here's where repetition comes into play, it started to come back to me. I would get a card for my birthday and it would say the favorite on it. And I was like, this thing works. This repetition deal works. And it started this thing in me that I'm like, if you just say something enough, it might start being true. Or people might perceive it as true. So I was like, I'm going to start telling people I'm tall. I don't appreciate the laughter, but it's it's there. Um, I'm relatively tall to some people. Um, 
you can stand next to me afterwards and figure that out for yourself, but I'm, I'm marginally tall. I'm, I'm not that tall of a person, but I thought if I just said it a lot and it was like, if I just said, I think Jared's pretty tall, people might be like, he stands next to short people sometimes. My wife is shorter than I am. And, and nothing ever fueled that worse than like I visit my, my wife's family and they're all shorter than like 5'8". And all the girls in the family are like 5'5 five, five and below. And one of them's 4'10". So like I would go visit my wife's family and be like, y'all need something out of the top cabinets? And they're like, no. I'm like, I'll go ahead and get it. And I would grab stuff from the top cabinets and get it down for them. And they're like, all right, we'll have to get a chair and put that back. But it's not that big of a deal. Um, and I just started like thinking, if I just repeat myself, I might, people might perceive that I'm tall. And it's all funny, and it's all relatively true, until I start standing next to some actually tall people. This is true of righteousness. This is true of the sliding scale of goodness in our lives. You might be better than the people you hang out with, you might be worse than the people you hang out with. That's not God's scale. God doesn't look at you and go, man, you are so much better than your friends. You're the person that everybody goes to for advice. Why would I not let him into heaven? My word, you did the right thing in a hard situation, so I gotta let him into heaven. God's standard of righteousness is perfection. And Romans 3.23 says that for all have sinned. All of us. So we get to look at someone who's on death row and say, yes, you've sinned, but my sin's no worse than yours. All of it separates me from God. And that's one of the things that people knock on Christianity and say, well, so because I, I haven't killed anyone, I haven't hurt anyone in that way. I've lived my life over here and it's not that bad. I don't understand how you can say that person on death row can in the last moments of their life give their life to God and they can end up in heaven just the same as me. That doesn't seem fair. But that's God. That's his grace. That's what he gives. It doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem right. But one of the first people that we see that Jesus helps bring into heaven, and when he's standing on the cross, there's a thief next to him that probably deserved to die who said, will you just take me with you? And he said, today you'll be with me in heaven. Because he had faith that Jesus was the way. See, and that leads into the next verse, the next thing that the Pharisee says. Pharisee comes in and says, let me list off my sacrifices to you. In verse 12, he says, okay, I'm better than everybody else. I've done all these right things. Then he says, I fast twice a week. The standard then, if I can tell you, the standard for Jews is that you fast at like a festival or like a feast or at the, the beginning of a feast. Like you, you only have to do it twice a year. And the Pharisees were like, God, I, I don't know if you've seen, but I've been doing this twice a week. And then they say, I give tithes on all that I get because you were only supposed to tithe on your livestock and your crop. But the, the Pharisees were saying that I do it on my garden, on all my income. Like, I, man, I, God, I'm doing all of it. Like, what else do you want from me? I'm doing more. And, and what I think this highlights is that we can have this attitude of if I go and sacrifice a little bit for God, I can really go and do whatever I want. God, if I serve you a little bit, if I do this one thing for you, does it matter how I go and live? 
See, what happened with the Pharisee is he said, I'm better than all the people around me and I do more. And honestly, in that moment, Jesus may have said, or God may have said, you're right, you are better than everyone. You do more, but you haven't given me your heart, which is still bad. It's still not righteous. It's still not good. And then he flips the script to the tax collector. And in verse 13, he says, But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Even just his physical stance, even where he stood, even his posture, he said, I don't deserve this. And he, the, the, the attitude there when he says he beat his breast, it's kind of this like, you ever been around somebody that's so like, responsive to their own foolishness that they've like punched themselves in the head or they've done something you're like give yourself a break like you're gonna be all right but it's this idea that it's like how could I be so stupid how could I do this how could I do so much wrong and and that's the attitude that he has he stands far off and he says God how could I do this and then finally at the end he says Be merciful to me, a sinner. When he says, give me mercy, he's saying, don't give me what I deserve. What I deserve is separation from you. What I deserve is hell. What I deserve is to not have access to my God. And he says, but I'm a sinner. And really, in the Greek, what I looked at is there's a a participle there where he says, I'm the sinner. He considers himself the number one. There's no one worse than me. God, I am the chief sinner. God, I am literally the worst. And this is the attitude that what we read in next, he says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, which means made just like he was before he was sinned, sinned fully forgiven, rather than the other, rather than the Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. What's your attitude towards God? Do you have an attitude towards God that puffs up your chest and says, God, thank you for not making me like them. God, I'm a little better than the people I'm around. Or is your attitude towards God to step back and say, God, I am the chief of sinners. I think about David. If you haven't read about David, David was a king, but he also did some really terrible things. But if you read Psalm 51, it's kind of his attitude of repentance. And it comes to a head. What what he's done is slept with another man's wife, gotten her pregnant. And when he realized she was pregnant, her husband was away at war. So he said, maybe if he comes home away from war, there will be a reason that I can explain this pregnancy away. And he's such a good soldier. He said, all my other brothers who are fighting don't get to be at home with their wives, so I'm not going to be at home with my wife. And he sleeps on the doorstep that night. So David's in trouble. So what he does is he says, send him out into battle, and when everybody gets out there, pull back a little bit and let him die. And David's friend comes up to him and says, hey, let me outline you a situation. David thought that nobody knew. And he paints the situation to David. And he says, what do you do with that? And David goes, you kill that person. But the person that he had outlined was David. And in Psalm 51, what you read is David is just heartbroken. Why? Because he has just been one of the most self-righteous people that we read about in the Bible. He's capable of terrible things. 
When someone outlines his problem, he says, you kill that person. He's terrible. And in Psalm 51, he says this phrase. He says, God, against you and you alone have I sinned. The punishment for our sins fits the crime. You have to think about, we're not just sinning against each other. We sin against God. David knew that. David knew in that moment he hurt people. He killed someone's son. He killed someone's husband. He killed someone's brother. He hurt families. But in that moment, he didn't say, God, I've got so much collateral damage that I have to fix. He said, God, I've sinned against you. That's all of us. We have sinned against God and we need him to forgive us. All of us are broken. All of us need help. All of us have sinned and none are righteous. No, not one. But God does not leave you there to sit in a pit of despair. He sends his son. And I think about Ephesians 2 where it says, I'm going to read Ephesians 2. And you were dead in your trespasses in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, carrying out the desires of the mind, were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were dead to our sin. There was nothing that we could do to puff up our chest and say that we figured it out. Then it says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he's loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works. If you accepted that gift from God, It's an act of humility. I'm going to be honest. It's an act of humility to say, I need that gift. Are you willing tonight to humble yourself and say, I need that? Will you bow your head?